Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kerland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part three of our conversation with Dr. Joe Lang. We've been exploring what it means when we talk about degrees of freedom. Every time I hear Joe give presentations on the concept of degrees of freedom, I want to share what he's saying. That's particularly true when he starts talking about the social consequences that result when degrees of freedom are restricted. We ended part two just as we were getting to this part of the conversation. Joe is going to weave together some fascinating connections between Gold Diamond's experiences in World War II, the Columbine school shooting, and other mass shootings, terrorism groups, and yes, horses. Horses do very much come into the conversation. This discussion may not only give you another way of thinking about events that are in the news, it may also help you to navigate some of the trickier relationships that you find yourself dodging, especially if you keep your horse at a large boarding barn or you're active in social media groups. So come join us for the continuation of this conversation. We're going to begin in an unlikely place with the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. This is getting us closer in the degrees of freedom to the societal relationships that I find so fascinating. So should we should we move to that? Sure. Let's let's uh, go back and, and get get in our wayback machine, and uh, that's a reference to Rocky Bullwinkle's <laughs> Mr. Peabody. Uh, he had a wayback machine and yes, <laughs> dog that had a, a boy Sherman uh, <laughs> as his pet or his companion. That was the only cartoon that my parents would ever allow us to watch. It was, it was, a, it was uh, so so yeah. So none of the uh, the, the other. Saturday morning cartoons that were on the television in the what the era in which I grew up, uh, we were not allowed to watch them. But Rocky and oh, Bullwinkle, um, that that one was very much allowed in the house. So clever, so good, and so clever, and very clever, and so on. It was really, really quite good. But if we get in our yes. wayback machine, and I go back, and and uh, when I began working with the Israel Gold Island, is he uh, background? Uh, in World War II was with the Army Intelligence. And he actually almost lost his life as a forward intelligence officer in the Battle of the Bulge. He almost froze to death. But the, uh, um, and uh, they thought him out. He was starting to freeze and they thought him out and he survived. Otherwise, there would have been no Israel gold either. It was that close. And, and the uh, very, very uh, touchy situation. But as time went on, he began interested in things like brainwashing. And and so on. And so he looked at it and said, oh my goodness, brainwashing and all of this is actually pretty simple. <laughs> and the uh, and one can do it pretty readily. And basically the, 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 the process is massive stimulus change, if possible. The more stimulus change, the better. In other words, you alter their environment of the person as drastically as possible. If you're abducted, that's a pretty attractive, you know, uh, yes. uh, and so on. Or you send them to a monastery or to boot camp. 
All right. So, so the stimulus change is what's important. You get them to put on robes and cut their hair and make it like in the Hare Krishnas, right? You take them off to the Spawn Ranch, as in the case of uh, uh, Charles Manson. So what you see is typically um, isolation and stimulus change. In other words, isolation from the dominant culture and stimulus change is the first step you want to do. Then the next step is you want to become primarily the sole source of information through that individual. And so everything else is filtered out. So I'm feeding you information that your father really doesn't want to free you from captivity here. He's more interested in his money and so on. And look at this. They had the opportunity to do this. They didn't do it. And so, uh, so I can distort the facts. I can make it all occur, you know, Semper Fi, right? I mean, I can, I have the, yeah. I'm teaching you the way of the, of the organization, right? I'm providing your own information. You're off a long way away from friends and family. Now there are degrees of it. Yep. You go to a horse training clinic and you buy, everybody has to buy the same equipment. So you're carrying the, the same right. equipment. You're, you're wearing the right. baseball cap with the logo right. on it and all the rest of it. And you're there for right. a week learning. Right. Yeah. Right. But there's an yeah. element there, however, that the real brainwashing occurs. Uh, another one, you can get affiliation with the group with these first two procedures I'm talking about. That's pretty strong. But the way you solidify that control is when you get the individuals, excuse me, to engage in behaviors which the dominant culture from which they are come from, whether it's the dominant horse training culture or whatever, <laughs> uh, uh, trained from, sanctions you. In other words, punishes your behavior for engaging the behavior you do inside the organization. You engage in that behavior outside and gets punished by the dominant culture. Well, then what happens is it drives you back into the group. In other words, the only place I can get my reinforcers are from the group. I try to engage outside with my change behavior from in the group, and I'm sanctioned. So this is what primarily is the goal in, 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 in a good job of brainwashing, is to make sure that the outside world treats them differently and in more aversive way than they would otherwise. That then solidifies the control within the group. Mm -hmm. And so if you take and look at that and all the brainwashing examples through history, you find that that occurred. As soon as I get on TV and say something bad about the government, the people listening go, oh, that guy's a traitor, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm shunned, right? The reason why you get out and give these statements isn't because it's going to build up their country. No, it's going to get you punished by the people that you were formerly connected to. Right? So this is the goal of that. You know, we don't care whether they support us or not. What we care about is can we get that person to, you know, to come in. Once they do that, then they'll spill the beans and tell us their secrets and, uh, and they'll tell us so this is what would happen they build these alliances with people when they do interrogations they do it through building alliance common alliances isolating the person and building common alliances and then once you spill the beans on something you realize you can never go back to the outside group yeah. then they've got you once they've got one little thing 
then they've got you, right? So this is all basic Army Intelligence 101. And But they hadn't in, analyzed it, which Izzy did in terms of the contingencies involved and, and so forth. Well, we took that then and expanded on it, began looking at it. And back in 2000, 2001, I believe it was, before this, uh, before um, I was invited to speak at a, uh, a conference in Florida. And I developed an analysis of what governed or what likely governed the behavior of the Columbine shooters. Mm. And what we begin to see is that these types of processes can ar arise out of fairly typical environmental contingencies, meaning that isolation, driving groups together, patterns that are reinforced within the group that become sanctioned by the dominant culture outside the group that drive them closer with, an, 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 with another element. And that is that now this is maintained because oftentimes these groups in schools and element and high schools and so on are maintained because of the aversive control being implied from the outset. In other words, this commonality of group was built around the aversiveness that each of the members felt from the people outside the group. In other words, the bullying, the mistreatment, yeah. and their restricted degrees of freedom in terms of alternative social consequences that they can get vis-a-vis -vis the other people in the school. In essence, if we all are in a situation where we don't have much and we're all in it together, that's fine. So you can go into countries in, in they did a survey in a very poor country in Africa where the people lived uh, hand to mouth, but they were happy. They're going, why? Well, because every day they all together met the challenges of life together every day. It wasn't one group had a whole bunch of ways of getting their outcomes that this group didn't have. They were all basically together. In high schools, in particular, uh, and these are involved, in, in and, be, and before that, middle schools and even grade schools, we see this a separation of degrees of freedom. In other words, I can do the debate club, uh, I can uh, uh, dance, I'm a good dancer, and you know, I'm a good talker, I can sit at the lunch table. And this is a slide I use typically. Well, those are all social consequences. You know, I can get social interaction that I value through any of those three. But if I can't dance, well, instead of two degrees of freedom, I have one. If no one invites me to sit and talk, I don't get the social interaction. Only thing I get is debate. Well, I could be the world's greatest debater. I could be Andrew Agassi of debate, right? Yes, yes. And everyone says, oh, he's so good. Joe's so good. But I see everyone else can sit at the table and they can go to the dances. They can do these other things. I don't get that opportunity. So yeah. that is really aversive to me. Right? So people on the outside are looking at you as, oh, that person is really successful. Right. But that individual is, is miserably unhappy. Exactly. I have zero degrees of freedom. You have two or three. You, you have no yeah. idea, even though... I have a trophy. <laughs> Debate yep. doesn't mean that if given the opportunity, I would 
chuck debate, just like Andrew Agassi would get rid of tennis, right? Yep. And that's a, but there are many other types of consequences and and interactions that people have. I'm, I'm not trying to say you should go that all debaters are. <laughs> right, 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 right. You just use that clear. as an example. <laughs> kind of happy, happy debaters with many degrees of freedom. That's just an example. Yeah. So I don't offend any debaters. But and you're also you're you're coerced into right. getting better and better and better exactly. at being a debater because that's the only thing exactly. that, that you can do. That's right. That's right. And it might be video games, by the way. And it might yeah. be a you know have to be a debate. It could be I'm getting really good at a video game because there's nothing else that works. Yeah. I'm getting really good at riding horses because it's the only thing I can right. do. But here's what else happens. When you have restricted degrees of freedom, and then someone again, applies an aversive stimulus, meaning I walk down the hall in school and they go, hey, jerk, nice shirt, not, right? Yeah. Whereas if I have multiple degrees of freedom and someone says that, I say, eh, blow it off. Because even if I lose the interaction with him, I got it from these other sources. So I don't care. No. But when I have very few degrees of freedom, any threat is a major threat. So what looks like a minor comment can be looked at as a major attack on one person, whereas that same comment is a minor annoyance for another person. So we tend to look at the topography of what is said and judge it by severity rather than its effects on a person given their degrees of freedom and their experience. So when we see on Facebook, for example, and you'll see in in these uh, discussion groups that are that uh, or comments that people leave, and somebody will leave a comment that seems on the surface, you know, it's negative, but it's like water off the it feels like water off the duck's back right. to you. But for somebody else, be huge. it's it's huge, right. and and this is explaining why right. it is such they have such right. a. Uh, gut-wrenching reaction to that's right that i comment. mean we see this all the time we say this so-called cyberbullying. well why do the kid yeah. get on there to look at the social comments to begin with because there's nothing they don't have anything yeah. else going for them and they're only there and so when they get an aversive event occur it's major whereas another kid who gets the same comment who's got lots of stuff going on and is talking to this person and that person and that person right or it just appears on their phone, right, as a negative comment. Like, yeah. oh, something appeared on my phone, and then it's a negative comment. Oh, my God, that's horrible, because there's no other comments on the phone at all. So if it's one negative one out of a thousand friendly interactions I have, I can blow that off. So yeah. so these are the what we call the contingency or functional variables that we, we have to look at. So now we've got teachers and principals and so on who are actually responsible for the structure in the environment. And guess what? They're not doing anything. So when, when you have an organism, let's go back to our pigeons again. And I take a pigeon and I take another pigeon and restrain it and put it in the back of the cage. And I take this pigeon and I give it a little electric shock It'll run over and attack the other bird. That's called uh, pain-induced aggression. 
It will also attack the other bird if I'm going along with the reinforcement and drop the rate, it'll run over and attack the other bird. Wow. I can be reinforcing it and I can put it on a certain interval schedule. And at a point in the interval schedule, like in an FI 40 seconds, you get to about 20 seconds, about halfway through, it'll run over and attack the bird. Just the two birds together with no schedules and no, no attack. Uh, it'll also only do this in a small enclosure. So if I have a big enclosure, it won't attack. So I have to have a small enclosure and I can elicit this attack by a range of these variables. I can also put a, a pigeon restraint and I can reinforce attacking it and it'll grow to a whole full-blown attack. So I can get operant. So what we see here is that these kids with the limited degrees of freedom are like an organism in a constrained cage. There's more than one way to restrain alternatives. In other words, th their cage in essence is in terms of alternatives metaphorically smaller than the other, other organisms. And so who's there? Teachers, principals. So you can become to hate them. Because they're yeah. there and they're doing nothing to change the situation. So now you form a clique. Uh, you start hanging out with people who have been similarly punished and you decide to wear long coats, which they did in the Columbine group. They wore these long coats and so on. And people then say, oh, these kids, oh, they're weird. You stay away from them. What's happening? They're sanctioned, right? Yeah. By the uh, uh, external community. So it drives them closer in. And so the reinforcers are only available, they only have the degrees of freedom within the group, which become more potent because of the exclusion outside the group. Yes. Now we begin talking about how much we hate the other people. And that type of talk is reinforced within the group. And then actions related to weapons are, are talked inside the group. And so when behavior, which is a destructive to the other group, the dominant group, occur, and my my guess is there's little things that occur before the big thing that we hear about in the newspapers. Because we see this the same thing in terrorist organizations, where now the reinforcer from in the group is when you do something to damage the external group. Mm -hmm. Now that reinforcer, then that gets going and you get the reinforcer. In the terrorist organizations, what makes it really potent is when people outside the group show some approval for what you did. <laughs> in other words, you attack a dominant uh, uh, controlling force in the, in the community and other peripheral groups who though may not be a part of your group say, I understand that. They, yeah, they're fighting for us. Whoa, now you've got a really big time reinforcers going, right? And so that's really going yes. to maintain the heck out of that behavior. And it's also then you're going to set up the ability to recruit from these groups now. Because I want control over the environment that I don't have individually. I can get that control by entering this group. The odd thing you might say, the paradox, is that I must submit to the requirements of the group to have control outside the group. So I have to submit here to have an effect here. Yes. And so I cut my hair, I, I or grow a beard, I, I uh, engage in religious practices or chants or whatever it is. Mm 
right? Adhere to a certain leaders and so forth. I have to do that. Yeah. yeah. So that I can, because without that, I don't have any control over this outside world. But with this and with this group, I actually can have a demonstrable effect that is reinforced inside the group and gets a ripple reinforcement outside the group. That's what maintains ISIS and Al Qaeda and the, and the uh, you know the, the oath keepers and the and the proud boys and so on. These are the contingencies that are operating that maintain these groups. It's the contingencies that operate that result in school shooters, either by themselves or in the group. Because oftentimes now what you'll see is you'll go back and they have a group, but it's an internet group. <laughs> in other words, they don't, they're yes. in different places. And there's people there saying, yeah, yeah, the, the, you know, everybody in these schools should die and so on and a manifesto and so forth. Well, how am I going to maintain an increasing connection there with the group? And how am I going to impress the group? Well, I'm going to go into a church and shoot all these people. And it's when the degrees of freedom are so restricted, the potent, the consequences maintain the group. And people will say, well, that behavior isn't reinforced. So it has to come from some mythical verbal behavior. And, and my point is, anyone who's ever shaped an animal knows that the lever press, the rat who presses the lever, that press occurs without it ever been reinforced. <laughs> In other words, it can only be reinforced once it occurs. <laughs> it can, but, yes. And what we have is variation from shaping. And that's the same thing you see within these groups. It's variation from shaping that is occurring, that results. And one of these variations, it turns out to be these attacks. And so we can actually understand pretty clearly what's going on. Now, historically, I was writing this for the Columbine thing. I was, I was to present at... Um, Florida Association of Behavior Analysis has talk on exclusion, but it was much more formal than what I'm giving now. And then 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And so I actually, in flying to the conference, it was the first day that they allowed air flights. And there were only two people on the plane, myself and one other person, flying to Florida to, to give this conference. And I quickly changed it to, to add the terrorism part. because uh, And then it became the roots of terrorism which was then later built upon and, and so forth. And I was contacted by the uh, APA and Kurt Salzinger, who was uh, then the head of the science directorate, I believe, uh, contacted me and I did an elaborate outline on this and it was sent to APA and they sent it to the White House. So I don't know whatever happened <laughs> to the analysis, probably in someone's trash can, but the, uh, uh, but the, um, you can look at this pretty clearly in terms of the contingencies of terrorism. And by the way, this isn't actually very new. If you look and read The Origins of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt, she describes this pretty clearly of, of what's going on in terms of historical efforts and the use of anti-Semitism to coalesce a group and to attack a group and so on. And, uh, and her book on their origin of totalitarianism actually depicts this. And she identified one key variable that I added, that was added to my talk. And that was that when the outside group has some form of military training, such as Al-Qaeda were the former Mojahideen in Afghanistan. So they drew from their ranks trained military people. 
Well, this is where it becomes dangerous. And this is why some of these organizations in the United States, which are drawing from formerly trained military, are the ones that you really have to keep your eye on. So, so how is that a magnifier? Because they have the training to carry out activities that others do not. Oh, okay. In other words, they have planning, they have strategic know-how, they can yeah. engage in, in uh, producing coordinated attacks. Like we're seeing uh, what they did in January 6th, right? They actually coordinated their effort. Right. They, they had phalanxes go in. They had designs that the other people, the other people, no matter what their reinforcers were in terms of storming the capital, they didn't have the same history of training that these folks had that spearheaded the event, right? right? We were only lucky they um, didn't get the weapons across the Potomac and, and so forth, you know, and this type of thing. Yeah. But um, but that's also strategic. In other words, we don't engage in this until we get to the certain point. Then we can up the ante, but not until, you know, because they knew that, let's face it, they're no match for the 101st Airborne. <laughs> so, you know, so, you know, it's not a very good idea to to take up arms against, you know, uh, that type of uh, fault. So what, what's the solution? Well, the solution is, uh, if we step back, and, yeah. and by the way, when you see these interviews with the most rabid mega supporters, for example, yes. what you see is this kind of ref refusal to confront the facts and so forth, right? You'll show the contradictions. They'll say, I'm against this. And then you'll say, but he's for this or they're for this or Herschel Walker paid for two abortions. It, well, but I still love him, even though I'm, I'm very abortion murder, yes. say, but I like Herschel Walker. Well, does someone who pays for murder, yeah. are they a murderer? Yes. Well, how about Herschel Walker? Oh, I love Herschel Walker. Right? And so it seems like there's a yeah. distance here. And, and people assume that facts make a difference. And they don't. Relationships make a difference. And so and control over your immediate environment and that around you makes a difference. This is where the conspiracy theories come in. It's a way of of having the type of control in the community. Like, you, you know, we all get together and we all know this is happening, right? It's it's that it brings that tightness of community is what the conspiracies do, <laughs> right? So the, the solutions are one of actually, a, if you look at, there's a person who uh, was interviewed who actually, uh, an African-American gentleman who was able to get 200 ex Ku Klux Klan members to leave and repudiate the organization. Right. And he did it by going in and making friends with them. <laughs> in other words, he didn't go into it by uh, calling them racist. He didn't go into it by uh, by going in there and uh, telling them they had their all facts wrong and that they were being fed a bunch of garbage. Then he went in there and became a relationship. Families who are dead set against uh, you know gay folks as soon as they have a gay cousin or son or daughter, yeah. all of a sudden it changes. Yes. And so what you, what you see is that most of what can be done is a, in the communities, which where they seem to have a lack of reinforcement, a lack of opportunities, a lack of degrees of freedom, going in and increasing the degrees of freedom, particularly early on for young people is critical. Two, 
building relationships with people, being there with them, talking with them is critical. The people who are most anti-immigration have never met an immigrant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? And the uh, uh, so this is critical. So it becomes uh, incumbent on us to build these degrees of freedom, to look at how we're applying the aversive control when the restricted degrees of freedom occur, and then give them options outside. And then look at the reinforcers for the leaderships. In other words, oftentimes it goes back to simply, I like power. And I, as long as I have power, such and such, so I will engineer things to be the leader and so forth. These people, if they're broke, broken a crime, they should be the ones put in jail. So the leadership should be targeted for that. The people should be that. And, and, and the same thing in schools. We should be looking at the degrees of freedom of our kids. We should, when we hear a, a small insult, we should immediately react. And even if you can't change it, be on the side of the student receiving the insult, right? Give them the benefit of the yeah. doubt. Do things so they can see they have an ally in this. And you'll do, and all of, a lot of the stuff will decrease in, in frequency. So it's a societal issue, but it's something that we actually could intervene with. But the major problem is very few people in policymaking roles utilize or make this kind of analysis. So bringing this to horses, I always think of the, the, our relationships that we have with horses is practice ground for uh, gaining the skills, the repertoire for dealing with the real world. Right. Right. And one of the things that I know people encounter who are using positive reinforcement because so many so many people have to board their horses they don't have their horses at right. home so they're in large barns and they are attacked right so the the dominant culture in the horse barns are command based training and they attack individuals who are using carrots and who are trying to be kind to their horses right. and so this dynamic of being attacked being isolated is definitely there and i see on facebook we see um one of the things that i just find so really curious is we have all of these facebook groups that splinter off that where you have positive reinforcement trainers who should be supporting one another because we're still a, a smaller contingent a group than the larger community out there and yet you see groups you see people on facebook attacking other positive reinforcement trainers yeah. and this all seems to me very related to what you've been describing no it is and the uh yeah you know and, the, and you can have very, you can have a group of three or four people doesn't have to be a big group either you know uh to, yeah so the thing to do is you know if i were boarding my horse there and there was folks there i would before I ever walked into the barn, I'd get to know the people. I'd look them up on Facebook or whatever, what they're interested in and so on. And I'd walk in and say, hey, I noticed um, uh, you're really interested in, uh, uh, I just happened to stumble across your Facebook page and you had all of these photos of these uh, NASCAR things. You know, I've always been yeah. interested in NASCAR. I I need someone to explain to me 
exactly what happens when X, Y, and Z and get them involved in a conversation that has nothing to do with horses, that has nothing to do with any of these things and just have a where they can get some reinforcers for talking to you. And, or if you know that they have a birthday and come in one day and say, hey, you know, and they bring them a cupcake and say, hey, what, what's this? Oh, I just saw that it was your birthday. And I thought you'd like, you know, I want to wish you a happy birthday. And, cupcake. Yeah. and no, it's not laced with poison. And the, uh, um, whatever. in other words, begin on, take it away from the context with the dispute and go to other human relation types of discussions. And you'd be surprised at how quickly the vitriol will drop. They may not agree with you still, but the attacking won't be there. Right. And you'll find that people will begin to come to your defense. Like, you know, Alex is goofy. She does this carrot stuff, but you know, she's a good person. You know, she's fun. You know, she. Yeah. She, you know, she's really into NASCAR and the, uh, uh, uh or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if, by the way, yes. if you want to make it sincere, I'm not saying do things that are insincere, but find areas of overlap right. outside of that. And I think you begin building relationships across those, you'll find a, a great deal of change will occur rapidly. And I found that way just doing it in terms of people who, you know, I'll go in. You know, there's a, I won't mention his name, but there's a very famous critic of behavior analysis and of uh, using rewards and so on. And it didn't take long in conversations with the person that uh, he came along and said, well, I'm not talking about the stuff Joe's talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about pop behaviorism, not the well thought out that I think Joe's talking about. And all of a sudden yeah. that changed, right? And so... It, it, it is a matter of if you build a relationship with someone and there are other reasons for getting along other than, you know, related to the profession, it'll bleed over into the professional. And that would be my recommendation. Yeah. It's, you know, to make a friend, be a friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it's not amazing. So... <laughs> I know, I know. It just sounds so, I want to say, basic and simple. Build your relationship. But we don't. We get our... And yet we we don't. Yeah. We get our, our... Our silos. Yep. And we get our backs up. And and now we're, you know, we're fighting mad and we're saying hideous yeah. things on Facebook. And, and we're tearing, we're, we're tearing, we're, we're, we're that pigeon that's attacking the other pigeon when we should be friends with the... You know, and 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 allies. It's, it's we're, we're all trying to be kind to our horses. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because in scientific organizations, oftentimes there can be diametrically opposed view of, of a particular theory or process, right? Yeah. And the people are completely opposed to one position versus another. I have this in in our field. There are there are positions that I Absolutely. oppose and that people have. and I can remember sitting there, you know, with the leader leader of the opposition, so to speak, and we're having a beer and just talking and laughing and talking, and people were shocked. They were saying, "No, wait a minute, you guys don't." It doesn't mean we don't like each other. <laughs> yeah. You know, 
you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, he's got his opinion. I got my opinion. That's, you know, you know, and, uh, and, you know, that's, that's fine. That's the way the world works. And as a result, the acrimony between our positions and the willingness to accept some of what each is saying is much more heightened and likely among people who also share our positions. So instead of siloing and attacking and and rallying the the you know troops around to defend the moat, so to speak, it becomes more of oh, can we get a little bridge over the moat? <laughs> you know, a two way little two way bridge. And so it and and there are times in, in science where that's not the case, but oftentimes it is, where you can be opposed to a particular position without being opposed to the person. So we have to hope that in places like Washington, D.C., that you know we're 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 getting, becoming so politically polarized that you want to say just go have dinner together, <laughs> go play softball together, go do something together, yeah. which is what was the norm right. prior to uh, you know that you would hear of these two people who politically are right. are just completely on opposite camps, but. They, they socialize together. Right. It's like, thank goodness they socialize together. So what do you do once someone has had destructive behavior, serious destructive behavior? What do you do with them? Well, it depends what you mean by destructive. Well, you know, someone assaulted the Capitol um, and killed, well, killed a policeman or, you well, know, destroyed... For millions of dollars of property, what do you do with those people? Well, you're talking about two different things. One is consequences for actions once they've occurred. Mm. And we set penalties so that society can be maintained at a certain level. And you follow through on that. You go to the courts, they've broken the laws, you follow through. But the other hand is we want to prevent that destruction. Mm-hmm. And so preventatively is when is more of what I'm talking about. Once it's occurred, then you have to follow through in that. However, uh, even once it's occurred, you can begin to bring people back, particularly those on the fringes who didn't do it quite as bad, who got a two-month jail sentence or probation or whatever. You know, those folks, oftentimes there's enough stimulus change from dealing with the legal system that, it, you know, mm. it's kind of a wake-up. And you can then have a chance to say, you know, we understand you got carried away and you have good feelings. Let's go get a drink and and uh, talk about bowling and the uh, you know this type of thing, right? So the uh, um, it is a uh, not an easy question. I mean, I'm not trying to suggest that you know these solutions are easy. I'm just saying they're possible, and that um, if I were president or whatever, I would very much look at. So, for example. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go close down a coal mine. I'm going to say, oh, I'm going to retrain the workers. Well, what 50-year-old coal miner wants to be retrained? Yeah. Seriously. I mean, am I going to sit yeah. and learn to be a computer programmer? Am I going to learn how to wire solar panels? So what I need to do is saying, okay, given the repertoires they have, what is it can we construct there that'll produce an income at less cost for them than coal mining. Mm -hmm. Given the repertoires they have, that's what I would be doing. In essence, 
in essence, I would I would be saying, and maybe I'm just paying them. In other words, I'm saying, you know, uh, this is you know this is a situation here where there isn't going to be a uh, a, a positions open in this area for a certain time. This is the wage you were making. I'm willing to pay that for you if you want to stay here and do this and maybe do some community work for us or you know or or help in some way that is um so community level jobs are paying x amount and we can build you remember uh the, the civilian conservation corps and stuff and things like that yes they yes. Have, right is there an offshoot yeah. of that where i can offer the same salaries that uh, or better at less cost and by the way and with you also have to look at the social aspects of it in other words i want to look at that this is a choice of that you took because you wanted to do well so i would give them the money for doing nothing or engaging in this do you want to help you can you can earn the money for doing this a, a, a certain income or you can earn the income plus to get x y and z for helping out in the in the civilian conservation corps activities and let them choose in other words, oh, I chose to help. Not I'm forced to help in order to earn a living. Mm-hmm. Right? They don't want to coerce anyone into, into those jobs. See, this is where these things become aversive. Is, yeah, it's a job they gave me that paid, but it's the only thing that I have the option to do. So I need to have at least more than one way of getting that, right? Yeah, they, they shut down the coal mine. They shut down the paper mill. Right. You know, my community is dying around right. me. All of the young people are moving away. Right. Life is horrible. I, I want it to go back to the way it was, right. even though the way it was might have been horrible. Right. And, and horrible for so many other people in, in the world, right? Uh, which, yeah, exactly, yeah. precisely. So I would really target those communities. I'd target those types of things. I'd look at where the, the try to, integrate people enough into a variety of organization uh, uh, opportunities so they're not under control of one say super uh, extreme evangelical point of view for example yeah. i know several kids who grew up in very extreme uh evangelical and i'm not criticizing all evangelicals by any time but extreme evangelical things where the behavior was highly restricted and so on who, because of economics and other things, ended up going to a public high school <laughs> or that, and all of a sudden these kids changed dramatically. They're, they're, you know, they're still religious and they're still the believers, but they're not extreme, mm. right? They hang out yes. with other people. They don't hate gays. They, you know, they don't mind gay marriage. There's all sorts of things, right, going on. They turned into fairly typical middle of the road folks once they got within the community that where people they liked were this way. The first time you find someone that you really like or care for who is of the other opinion, you you don't have you're not quite as harsh. Yeah. And so that's 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 so this this oddly enough brings me around to head sprout. Okay. And this is my this is my question. Okay. And and it's I mean we it's not really related to horses, though perhaps I'm, everything's mm-hmm. connected. So I'm sure that it is. But Head Sprout, wonderfully uh, uh, effective program, taught 4 million children to read, 
during the uh, lockdown for the coronavirus, why, why did going online seem to fail so miserably when there are so many phenomenal resources, uh, teaching resources, available, like Headsprout? Well, because they're not in the current repertoire of the teachers who went online. <laughs> in other words, uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, if you, uh, let's go up to a non-Headsprout example. It's Morningside Academy in Seattle, where my wife is the principal. They went online and none of their, and they did not suffer the declines in performance that the others Of course did. not. They adapted their procedures to maintain the children's behavior through their programs, even online. But that was in their repertoire to do. They knew how to do that kind of thing. They had the skills that allowed them to do it. And what we're saying is that the teachers who primarily had to go online to teach the kids and the schools did not have it in their repertoires to be able to engage in the behaviors that even if they wanted to, they didn't have it in their repertoire to be able to do it. Yeah. So it's not a matter of of, of just refusing to do it. They, they just didn't have the repertoire to do it. So I think this is a really important thing that needs to be heard because it does relate to horses. I don't, well, I, one of the things that I'm finding is that teaching online, teaching via Zoom, has been wonderfully effective, which really surprised me because working with horses is seems as though it should be uh, very hands-on, very direct, that you need to be there. And yet I'm discovering that, no, I don't have to be in the barn with people uh, to be effective I, online. I had this vision of you talking, seeing a horse's head in the Zoom window, and you're and you're having this discussion with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and it it really uh, I find it sad that we had this grand experiment uh, going online and teaching, and but without the support, yeah, to teach people how to go online and teach, and so. It's as, as it's as though it's sort of set back, probably by decades. But in true, but in fairness, you know, getting them the skills to teach effectively online, this happened really fast. It wasn't like, hey, we've got three years yes. to prepare our teachers to go teach online, right? <laughs> uh, it's easier in college, right, where people are held responsible for the learning, right. uh, and in other places with adults, online teaching. As a matter of fact, what colleges are finding is that many of the students who were forced to go online would prefer to stay online. They actually thought they learned more and better online. And there are many schools which have found that their on-ground enrollment is dropping while their online enrollment is increasing dramatically. Huh. And the uh, uh, and uh, I'm affiliated you know, on, on different boards of different colleges. And one of the colleges I'm on, it was really fascinating is that even people who live less than a mile from campus are opting for online. Mm. And the- uh, Doesn't uh, surprise me. Because it's just more convenient. And it depends who the learner is. You know, those who teach in professional school programs, for example, are teaching people who are typically employed somewhere. And going into class is kind of a pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have to drive in. I have to sit in class. It's not that they, they don't hang out with the students and hang out at the bars and go to clubs. No, they got families. 
They got stuff to do. Right. They're trying to get an education and go to the next level, right? And online for those people is a lifesaver. It allows yep. them to, to maintain their living, maintain their family interactions, and advance educationally. Online's been a, a, a boon for those people. It's been phenomenal. Yes. So what were sort of some of the things that were in repertoire for the teachers at Morningside? They know how to moment-to-moment uh, -moment analyze behavior and its academic behavior I'm talking about uh, and its relation to what's being taught, how to intervene, how to organize uh, reinforcers and maintain them while it's going on, how to uh, use frequency timings and so on to keep students involved and active and how to space them out over time. And it's a whole, it's what they do every, basically every day in classroom, but now when they're, and, and they simply transferred all those skills to the online environment. And so um, it, it tended to work out. In other words, they still got the same type of choral responding. They could hear the kids respond on the thing. They could hear the ones who weren't. Kids can vote. It was highly interactive. It wasn't tell me what it, you know, it wasn't just sit and listen to me. It's it's very interactive where they they respond, the kid responds, they present, the kid responds, the kids respond one together and so on and collaborate. So there's a variety of things. Plus they kept up um, their, uh, interestingly enough, their uh, physical education. They have, a, they have a martial arts as part of their physical education because you can do it indoors and, and it's fairly... You know, you can get a lot. You can get a lot of activity in a small space. They had those classes in the kids' home. They kept the martial arts classes going, right, and so forth. Uh, they had they had their little art things that they did. They kept those going. So the uh, they were able to translate then and move that. And Joanne worked. I mean, the other thing that made it work is she was there going into classroom after class, looking at the teachers, looking at the interaction, looking at the kids, and then making recommendations on what to do in order if a kid was drifting, call the parents and say, okay, we're going to give you a support card. Here's what we'd like you to do at this point in time. And to, uh, here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's what your kid's doing. Here's what we need you to do. And so they would recruit the parents as part of the effort. And sometimes it's, it's to get the parents out of the room, even <laughs> quit hanging over the kid, <laughs> get out of there, you know, and at other times it's, you know, come in and, reinforce at times and and do other things right or reinforce after or, or whatever and they have what's called a daily support card not daily report card but daily support card and it's what went well today for your student and where they're making progress and you and it's sent home every day and so the parent gets a report and then can comment on it with their kids and it keeps the reinforcers flowing for activity in schools right so they transferred that to home. So there's a variety of things they did to make that possible. Yeah, I think really important to hear that it is mm. possible. Oh, it is possible, yeah. Yeah, it is possible to have quality education online. Yeah, and you could, you, it, it is more difficult. I'm not sure it's preferable for little kids, uh, but it's possible to do. My yeah. guess is a hybrid approach. It might be where you have some of each and given what the requirements are, what the objectives are. Uh, is probably what would evolve. If you want to see what probably should evolve, there's a book written in, I think, 1968 or 69. 
by a guy by the name of George B. Leonard. He used to write for the San Francisco newspaper. And uh, he wrote a book called Education and Ecstasy. <laughs> That's a good title. <laughs> and, and his model is still pretty much what I think is probably uh, the model that should be in schools. <laughs> if, if you take a look at that book, you can get it. It's still sold today. And, and used copies are probably two or three bucks. But uh, but it's a it's a still nice little book. Well, I would love to dig deeper into instructional design, but we have been talking for a very very yes, long yeah. time. I had to go. So could I be? Yeah. And and we had the tiniest little sorry old diamond story, but again, I don't want to be overly greedy with your you know with the how generous you, you've been something you want to know you wanted to know about gold diamond just, well i it was more because you knew him yeah. just some fun stories to share so that he becomes a person and not a name well he uh well he was he loved the kids that would come into our lab that were the you know the kids of our lab people right uh, there's paul and jonas's daughter and jeff griff's kids and so on come in the lab and every day we'd have a lab meeting at a particular time like i i believe it was one o'clock in the afternoon on fridays it started and we'd all be in the room because izzy would want us all be there at time but he wouldn't be there and we'd say what, what happened to izzy where is he he'd be 115 130 <laughs> so we say we better go look for him where is he and he would be in his office with the kids all around him cutting paper dolls he <laughs> loved to make paper dolls with the kids and he could do these elaborate, they'd come up with different clothes. And then he'd pull them out and they'd have dresses on. And they'd pull them out and they'd have, you know, uh, just like, uh, no, you know, pants on and so on. I mean, it was like, it was amazing what he could do with cutting out these things and making, and the kids were just spellbound. And he'd be in there playing with the kids, cutting out uh, things and playing with them and forgetting completely about our lab meeting and playing paper dolls with the kids. So that's a, <laughs> that's something he did too. And he was, a, you know, paraplegic in a wheelchair. Yeah. And uh, yeah. uh, and he'd give the kids rides on his wheelchair, you know, and, and so forth, and sit on his lap or hang on the back, and and he'd go around the lab and with them on the wheelchair. He, he enjoyed that, but he was also a tough guy. I mean, he uh, if you crossed him, uh, uh, he could be rather. Uh, what can you say? It uh, uh, he he would hold one accountable for crossing him. <laughs> Let me put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh i in my entire time with him i spent over 15 years with him uh we never had a crossword ever not once not once did we have a, a, any type of uh raising of the voice or don't do that or, or or no that's not the way to do it or whatever and uh usually he'd laugh at me and say let's get oh this has got to go <laughs> you know that type of thing but i mean it wasn't there were corrections but they were all done you know good naturedly but on other cases, yeah. uh, you know, I would see students coming out of his office and tears in their eyes. You know, it depends how you interacted with them and and what ha what happened uh, uh, on this. Um, and if in the field uh, you crossed him or you tried to debate him, you were taking on a lot. And uh, I'll tell one final story. I was at an ABBA conference and they had a little like riser so that people could see him in his wheelchair. So it was up off the ground a certain distance. And so we pulled him up onto the riser and he was sitting up there and next to him was a chair. And he was gonna debate a famous uh, 
uh, either uh, a cognitive psychologist or neurophilosopher or something, somebody famous. And Abba had arranged this debate between Goldeye and Moody. Except they made one small, I don't know, um, I think they did it on purpose, was they said, you're going to debate a renowned behavior analyst. They didn't say who. And so the guy's walking in. And I met him at the door and I'm walking with him down. I said, oh, come this way. And it's there's rows of people. It's like an auditorium type thing. There's rows of people and people are sitting on the floor and out front so they can see on the ground. They're sitting on the floor as well as in the chairs behind. And we're walking down the, uh, the, the uh, you know, uh, like a fan going toward the, the stage and he stops and he looks up. He goes, oh, no. And I said, what's the matter? And he goes, no one told me I was to be sacrificed to gold diamond. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh no, I got to tell you, Lim, that's not fair. <laughs> and the, and the, and the best quote I read, no one told me I was to be sacrificed to gold diamond. <laughs> because he had that reputation of being no, this, and I'll tell you one final story. We were at a, a Association for a, a Advancement in Behavior Therapy. It's now changed its name to something else. But the organization, this was in probably 1979 or so. And he's on his big panel. And it's this huge event. And all these people from the whole conference are there. Everybody's there who's at the conference. I mean, everybody. And there is, he's on a panel with Richard Lazarus, Joseph Volpe, and Albert Ellis. All the huge names in psychotherapy and, and behavioral psychotherapy in the day. And the topic was the role of thoughts and emotions in psychotherapy and behavior. And it was a panel discussion and each of them presented their position first and then there was a discussion when they answer questions from the audience and so on. And so they all spoke and Izzy went last. And he says, oh, our position is rather simple. He said it's straightforward. Sometimes we maintain that both same for emotions or, or thinking. Sometimes we think before we speak. And other times the contingencies result in us speaking before we think as evident by my colleagues on the panel today. <laughs> and, and the place went wild. It was, you could see he went last just so he could set him up for that. He had been planning, you know, he had, he'd set him up for it. It was so funny. I mean, it was hilarious. And the, uh, um, I mean, we just were in tears in the audience. And <laughs> interesting, uh, uh, Lazarus went mad. He was so angry. Volpe thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. He came up afterwards and said, Izzy, you really set us up. That was great. But Lazarus, oh, he was really upset and angry. He's, and his his therapy was rational motive therapy, right? <laughs> and so, and this type of thing. And But he, so he was, he was livid. He was insulted. But, but Izzy just then owned the audience thereafter, right? Mm. I mean, he owned the stage. He just dominated the thing. But he had set him up beautifully for that. And that's the kind of guy he was. I mean, he was really clever and really difficult 
Uh, he was asked by a psychiatrist once in the a panel. I was on it with him, actually. And he was asked by the psychiatrist, and he said, well, um, the maturity of any approach is when it realizes it is at times confronted with problems it's, they cannot solve within their approach. Have you ever been confronted with such problems? As he goes, oh, yeah, many times. But uh, I've been confronted with problems for which my approach could not come up with a solution. But then, of course, no one else's approach could either. <laughs> you couldn't corner him easily. You would not corner him. No, 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 not at all. It would be totally impossible. But then, of course, no other approach could either <laughs> on those cases. <laughs> and so it was like just took the air right out of the guy's uh sails immediately hmm. so you know the guy was brilliant um how old <laughs> was he when he died he was 76 mm -hmm. 76 years old he died in he was born in 1919 he died in uh 1995 at the end oh, i think in uh right after his birthday in 1995. Mm -hmm. So he was 76 years old. Uh, he died of a rare bone cancer that uh, uh, we believe was probably caused through his time in our lab because our, our lab, this, I, I have to run, this is the last story. Uh, the Our lab was on the second floor of the Museum of Science and Industry, uh, East Wing in Chicago. It was right on the lake, and it was a big building with no windows. As a matter of fact, you could turn off the lights, and it was the blackest black you've ever seen because there no light crept in from anywhere because there were no windows. It was the interior, big cement block walls. And on the on the door was one of those, and, and uh, Alex will remember this, the uh, young, other younger people in our audience won't, but there used to be these uh, radiation things, you know, these yellow and black signs with the little spin wheel yeah. on it. And uh, and they would say, you know, if you weren't going to, when the nuclear attack came, you went here and hid under your desk, you know, or whatever. Okay. <laughs> or the food stored there, biscuits or whatever for the for the nuclear war. So, so you could stay alive for the two days before the radiation killed you. And the, uh, uh, but these were in our lab and they were on the, in the back room, they were on the door of this big vault, a, a huge like safe. Uh, that was in the, in the second floor back room by the freight elevator. And we had over 5,500 square feet. It was a big thing. And and to take Izzy in and out, we'd have to go out the back door and into the freight elevator, go down the freight elevator and go out the back door, out the back of the museum and around the front because that was the wheelchair access. So years later, I'm in Chicago and I get a letter from the university. This is in the 1990s now. I get a letter from the university. And the university said, well, we renovated the space and the second floor. And an environmental inspection showed that you've been exposed to uh, particles of beryllium that are lodged in the floor of the second floor, and particularly in the back. And it turns out that the Fissionable materials used in the first controlled nuclear reaction by Enrico Fermi at the University of Chicago were stored in that in that area with that big safe. 
Wow. <laughs> the world's first nuclear reaction. The materials used, the isotopes, were stored yeah. in that safe in the back yeah. room. And that's what all those symbols were up there for. <laughs> Not because they were fallout shelters. We're busily going about our daily chores there. Uh, exposed to this all the time. And he spent but, his life there. Well, and here's the other thing. He was in a wheelchair. Mm. The wheels of the wheelchair are coming in contact with that floor constantly. He's pretty scared. Right? Bare hands on the, mm. wheel, on the wheelchair. So it's a wonder he made it to 76. Yeah. So in other words, we believe that it was probably as a result of exposure to that radioactive material in the lab. There's no way to prove it. There's no way to... To, I mean, it was long gone afterwards and so on, and there's nothing you could do anyhow. I mean, it doesn't prove it, it wouldn't prevent it. Uh, but right. but the fact was, the uh, since it was such a rare form of cancer, and nobody in his family had been afflicted by it before, that our supposition is that it was probably caused by exposure to that beryllium. And so far, none of us or the kids that we know of have had any ill effects from it. So, but we had shoes on. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and so forth. And we, you know, we're in and out more on the streets, probably wiping stuff off our feet, too, rather than, yeah. you know, and so forth. So in the winter, you'd actually wear boots and so forth. So, I mean, it was a, uh, you know, an interesting little bit of history that uh, uh, that, that, that right. isotope was actually kept in our back room of our lab. Hmm. Actually, the, also in the back room of our lab was a machine used by the original discoverer of REM sleep to discover REM sleep. And that machine was in the back of our lab too. We had all kinds of crazy stuff back there from the history of, of the previous tenants and so on in the, in the, in the labs and so forth. Uh, we had both human and animal work in our labs. We had rats, pigeons, and humans that we did both experimental and, and then clinical work with. I was part of and funded through the Department of Psychiatry. At, at the University of Chicago. Izzy was a professor of psychiatry and uh, behavioral sciences, biopsychology, medicine, and uh, in the college. So he had professorships across the board. And the uh, some of us came through the program through social sciences, and some came through biological sciences. So those who came through biological sciences had research physiological uh, fellowships, and we had National Institute for Mental Health training fellows uh, fellowships in, in our end and uh at, at this so the uh so we had a even though we were part of psychiatry we did a lot of sorts of animal research and and so on and sometime we'll talk about the symbolic behavior in the pigeons where we we were able to show pigeons could do things that no one would ever expect a pigeon would be able to do like and, what and uh, uh, uh well well a couple things uh one is symbolically aggress against another pigeon what and does the, that uh, look like? <laughs> well, it's it's too long. To you know what? Now. I think we, <laughs> but it's published. I, 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 think, <laughs> I think we should hold yeah. that as a teaser All right. because you you yeah. you need to go. Yeah. I don't want to be too greedy. This has been amazing, and I would if I would love to have that as a teaser. And when you have another block of time that sure. you want to spend chatting with us uh that we that we schedule a, another conversation because there's so much more 
so much more. Would love to talk about emotions next time. And by the way, it, uh, um, it, that work led to the uh, uh, discovery of uh, contingency deduction. That's where contingency deduction came from. That work. Oh, what a tease. <laughs> All right. So, so we'll treat it as a tease. And I will, I'm going to send you an email that says thank you immensely and send us some dates. <laughs> I enjoyed myself. I'd be happy to do uh, this again and talk more. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Joe has certainly given us a lot to think about. I always appreciate it when people share the Equosity podcasts. This conversation with Joe is one that in particular, I hope you share. It's about so much more than horses. When you reach out to build a relationship with someone in your barn or at work or at school, you never know the ripple effect you may have in their life. Including, not excluding, expands the degrees of freedom for everyone. So again, do please share this podcast. And until next time, train well and have fun with your horses. Music